the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, he is. And here to say good afternoon. Welcome. Welcome to this Thursday, last day of March. That's it. No more. Guaranteed. Tomorrow will be a whole new month, and it'll be April Fool's Day. Hopefully, you won't found to be... The Fool on April Fool's Day. Good afternoon again. Craig Roberts spending some time with you here on this Thursday edition. Always a privilege. And uh, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to deal with a topic that at some layers to some folks I think will be a little bit uncomfortable, largely because it hits a bit too close to home. Let me begin to sort of set the stage by saying this. For those that pay attention, that look at differing opinions, that listen to what's presented to them in the news, online, in print, and then use discernment, knowledge, experience, hopefully a modicum of wisdom, if you've been granted such things, to then come to conclusions. It's the delight and the blessing of using the intellect that God has indeed equipped us with to navigate our way through the challenges that life presents us. Sadly, though, the amount of illiteracy amongst Christians is pretty alarming. And I say that because of the things that they buy into. People that will say to you, oh, yes, I believe in Jesus. I'm a born-again believer. And then hear some of the foolishness that comes out of their mouth in terms of getting caught up by every wind of doctrine that may come along or believing in uh, fairy tales and nonsense and QAnon uh, fantasies and things of this sort with no apparent sense of discernment whatsoever, show me a person like that and I will show you someone that doesn't spend much time reading, let alone much time reading Scripture. The impact of biblical illiteracy, I believe, has had a significant crippling effect on the church today. And we're reminded in 2 Timothy 2 and 15 to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But of course, how can you rightly divide that word of truth when you've never read that word of truth, when you've never studied that word of truth? If you've been a long-time listener to this program, you know that's been a major bone of contention of mine and apparently that of my first guest tonight. Professor Kenneth Samples is a philosopher and theologian. He is a senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe, author of a number of best-selling books, including Christianity Cross-Examined and Classic Christian Thinkers. 
who joins us as we help ponder this question. Why is it that Christians don't apparently like to read? And Professor Samples, thank you so much for being with us. I was fascinated by your story in that it apparently it was a similar observation offered by a colleague of mine, Dennis Prager, who pondered the same thing. Why it is that Christians seemingly shy away from spending time, well, in books of any sort, but let alone, for that matter, specifically God's Word. Why do you think that is? Yeah, the, I, boy, I really appreciated your presentation here. Um, I, I think you're right, and I think when people like Dennis Prager, who, uh, you know, he's a conservative talk show host, he's a public intellectual, he is uh, a friend of uh both conservative political politics, but he's also a friend of Christianity. But, you know, he he was struck that uh, many Christians don't read. Uh, and, of course, his comment is that out of Judaism, you have a very bookish approach to things. Uh, God has given you a mind. He wants you to use it in your pursuit as you, as, uh, as you hunt and gather the truth, so to speak. Truth is a sacred thing, therefore you have to use your your skilled uh, thinking and reading. And uh, unfortunately, um, I think there are at times where within the Christian community or within particular churches, you might say, there's kind of an anti-intellectualism, and, and sometimes the idea that maybe your mind gets in the way of you being spiritual but as you noted, uh, the Apostle Paul was as spiritual as anyone could imagine. He was also very intellectual and very careful and critical. And I love the word you used, discernment. That's a, that's a virtue in the New Testament. You know, what's fascinating about this, and I, I think we've all run into people who, as non-believers, will say, well, you know, the problem with all that faith stuff is it's just, it's, it's, rooted in fantasy. There, there's, there's no meat to hang on the bones there. I can't find any empirical evidence. And, and sadly, they will oftentimes cite the behavior of Christians as evidence of the lack of, of intellect related to uh, the Christian faith. And yet, those that have taken the time to study it would recognize, for example, on the topic of evolution versus creationism, uh, that there's much in science that, in fact, right along the line, provides a tremendous degree of veracity to what we see in Scripture as to how man came to be, as to what we see supported scientifically. And yet I think that perhaps part of that widespread belief that it is all a matter of faith and there can be possibly no no um, intellect involved in Christian faith whatsoever is perhaps because a lot of these people look at Christians and say, I hear them say some of the craziest, quite frankly, stupidest things. They're clearly not people of intellect so they must have to check their intellect at the door in order to become a Christian. Do you think that's part of the negative sphere of influence here that we see amongst non-believers? I think it is. I, I think that there is the perception on the part of skeptics and atheists uh, that Christians are feelers rather than thinkers. Now, nothing wrong with being a feeler. God gave us emotion. But we need to be thinkers. I mean, I think of the numbers of people who say they are, you know, ex-evangelicals, people who have gone experienced deconversions. You know, Christianity has always been a robust intellectual enterprise. It, it uh, 
it birthed science in the 1600s in, in Christian Europe. Many, I mean, I'm a logic instructor. Many of the greatest logicians have, have been Christians. Craig, I, I wonder in some respects if, you know, Christians are usually pretty good at detecting the moral virtues, you know, be faithful to your spouse, don't lie, don't steal, kind of the second five of the Ten Commandments. But sometimes they, they are not aware that there are also intellectual virtues in Scripture. The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. Why? Because they opened up their Hebrew Bible and checked Paul and see if what he was saying was correct. Or Paul says, test all things, hold on to, to the good. The context of that is prophecy, but it's a pretty good general principle. And of course, uh, Paul talks about being renewed in your mind. What I like to say to Christians who might be somewhat um, anti-intellectual is, you know, think of it in terms of loving God with all of your capacities. That, that remarkable capacity called the mind is something the Lord wants you to use. And, you know, the fascinating thing, if we think about true discipleship, being a, a follower, an emulator of Jesus Christ, he sets the greatest example for us. There he is as a young boy, yeah. not just studying in the temple, but later on, in fact, teaching in the temple. And the number of times throughout his life, his three and a half years of ministry, where he would run into circumstances and situations, oftentimes being challenged by the Sadducees and Pharisees and other bystanders, and fascinating to note that even Christ himself would first and foremost quote Scripture back to them. Does not Scripture say? And I find yeah. that if very God himself, Jesus, found it necessary to study the Scripture, obviously teach the Scripture, memorize the Scripture, and quote the Scripture, how much more then should we, as that roadmap to daily living, dedicate, doesn't have to be 10 hours a day, but dedicate some time to not just reading scripture, but also reading writings by many of the great theologians uh, of our, of our, the ages, you know, you mentioned about Thomas Aquinas, and I, and I, I, I think of, you know, even Luther, and, and much of the rich, not only church history that's available to us, but exegesis on subjects and topics that will help us go deeper in broadening our understanding, and yet oftentimes we just tend to shy away. You've made a great point, um, Craig. In the New Testament, I mean, there are Christian philosophers and logicians who have said that Jesus Christ, not only our Lord and Savior, but he was a very skilled logician. He was able to uh, take arguments and present truth claims. And so what we have in the, the example of Jesus is, again, he is a sage. He is a wise man. He's able to, uh, as you mentioned, uh, critique arguments. Uh, and and I think that's a great way of communicating to maybe Christians who need growth in the area, that even Jesus saw the, necess the necessity of being careful, reflective, and thoughtful in, in responding to claims that people make. I'm reminded of a passage of Scripture, and we'll take a time out on this, that we are called upon to put on the mind of Christ. What does that say to you when we think of that, when we understand that Jesus quoted Scripture. He was God himself. He could have just said, thus saith me. And yet he quoted Scripture. And we're told to put on the mind of Christ. What exactly does that look like? If he's given us brain, given us an intellect, 
Should we put it to use for his service and for our own benefit? We'll explore that part of the equation today as we continue our discussion with Professor Kenneth Samples, philosopher, theologian, senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe. He's got several best-selling books out, including Christianity Cross-Examined and Classic Christian Thinkers. I'm Craig Roberts, back with more of our discussion as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Think about this quote, putting on the mind of Christ, a direct reference, of course, to St. Paul's powerful injunction in Philippians 2 and 5, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. These words call on us as to um, what we're exactly supposed to be doing in our faith walk, that on this path, so to speak, it's not just a matter of admiring Jesus or even attempting to emulate his actions but to acquire his consciousness. And, of course, to do that, to put on the mind of Christ, really summons up the notion that we need to be engaging in the exercise of our intellect, just as he modeled. Professor Kenneth Samples with us today, philosopher and theologian, senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe, and we're discussing this whole matter of putting on the mind of Christ, or, as you put it properly, life of the mind, this tremendous intellect, this gift that we have been given. What does it look like when we talk about putting on the mind of Christ? Yeah, I appreciate you presenting it that way, Craig, because a lot of times Christians, uh, you know, they look at Jesus and they realize, you know, he's love incarnate, Jesus is morally perfect, but I like the way you put it, uh, even though Jesus is motivated by love, he's also motivated by truth, and he's not afraid to disagree, he's not afraid to challenge ideas and, and to critique them. And I I think we see that model played out not only in the Gospels, but in the Epistles in the New Testament, where truth is a sacred thing for the Christian. Therefore, we want to to be able to use our minds, our intellects, with with great care. Uh, Whenever we discover the truth, we should embrace it. We should always insist upon it. I, I think in terms of reading, you know, the, the great educator Mortimer Adler said that reading is that fundamental discipline. And, you know, from a Christian point of view, uh, not only if you have trouble reading are you going to have trouble in school, you may have trouble in employment, but you'll also have trouble in understanding the Bible. Uh, what's really interesting to me, Craig, is that Christianity and Judaism are bookish religions, and that was always very different from the pagan religions. The pagan religions were always kind of temple-oriented, but it was Jews and Christians who said, look, God uh, created the world with namas and logic, with with laws and logic, and, and he's made us in his image, and therefore he can reveal a revelation, a propositional revelation in words to us. So Christians and Jews are people of the book. Muslims make a very similar claim, but all of the pagan religions, both Old and New Testament, didn't have that kind of bookish element where where reading, thinking, reflecting were, were seen as intellectual virtues. This is true. And, you know, it's interesting because when we're referred to in the Quran, for example, as people of the book, 
uh, it, it denotes a difference about our belief system that sadly many Christians have become disconnected with. And I have to wonder, for those that, that, that have an ear to hear, as they say, uh, that recognize, you know, I, I do fall short of that. I don't take the time to read the way I should, not just in Scripture, but other companion books that can help deepen the breadth and depth of your understanding and application of Scripture. Again, Scripture first and foremost, to be sure, but there's so much out there of the great thinkers that help then to to kind of draw the connection between what's taught in Scripture and the practical application is is lived out in our day-to-day life. How does somebody who, maybe even in getting an inkling from this conversation today, Professor, says, you know, uh, yeah, guilty is charged. How do I go about um, pursuing what it's like to put on that mind of Christ? My goodness, do I run down to the local library and check out 20 big, thick books and start that way? How do we do this? How do we start this process? And in the end, in your opinion, what is the, the practical benefit? How does the rubber meet the road in terms of the impact on the believer's life, in your opinion? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question. I, I, I think of the uh, the great Yale historian of Christianity, Yaroslav Pelikan. He said a church is always more than a school, but a church can't be less than a school. I think part of the challenge is we need churches that not only teach people the Word of God and Christian doctrine, introduce them to some of the great Christian thinkers, but I also think that we need churches that will help people in the pew to learn critical thinking skills and and principles. There are some terrific books out there. Um, I have, for example, wrote a book, A World of Difference, and I devote two chapters to just introducing basic principles of logic, basic principles of critical thinking. I have a list of common informal fallacies that people engage in. You know, a straw man, you misrepresent an argument, uh, or an ad hominem where you attack the character of a person rather than critiquing the argument. I think that there are some basic tools, and, and this is where I think our pastors and our teachers in the church, we, you're, you're exactly right. We need to teach them how to be more discerning in their reading of Scripture and in political issues of the day. I mean, think of the cultural issues we're faced with now regarding marriage, re- regarding abortion. Uh, Christian people need to be taught how uh, to put on the mind of Christ and to, to value the intellect. Exactly right. And, um, you know, that's, for some people, uh, going to be a, a bit of a challenge if they've never had the uh, the sense of um, the habits, I should say, formed in, in doing study. And I think sometimes people get a little bit overwhelmed by this idea. They, they hearken yeah. back to their days in high school or college and think, oh, my goodness, the grind of having to, to study and memorize at the end of a long day, and now I'm going to sit there with my thesaurus or concordance, uh, rather, and my Bible and trying to study. I don't know if I can handle that. But does it have to be a, a marathon, or can it just be bite-sized chunks day by day until you begin to sort of, you know, not only absorb the benefit um, of, of what you're learning, but ultimately then see the practical application? Absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, Craig, the most important learning isn't necessarily a doctoral degree or a master's degree or even a bachelor's degree. I think the most important learning in life is lifelong learning. That is 
taking a part of your day, maybe 30 minutes, maybe, you know, an hour where you set up some reading goals, where you pick books that are going to challenge you. I've been teaching logic at the college and university level for more than 30 years. And you know what, Craig? It's always the logic, critical thinking class where students come to me and say, I feel so empowered. I feel like you've helped me to acquire a skill that can help me discern. I think we need to do that in our churches. And I think we need to encourage people, bite-sized, think, think long-term. I mean, uh, the life of the mind, it's also been shown, it may push back, you know, uh, cognitive problems like Alzheimer's. So having a robust thought life gives many practical benefits. Certainly it'll help you discover truth. It will help you in your education, your career. Even the Founding Fathers said, you know, education will help you to serve as a, as a uh, citizen in the nation, to sit on a court, to vote. All of those things are critically important. And will ultimately, I think, help you avoid a lot of pitfalls in life when you meet those challenges to have pool of information, of knowledge that you can draw upon. Again, studying to show yourself approved and memorizing his word. When scripture says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Well, how do you go about absorbing that word? Well, you can place the Bible across your chest, I suppose, but uh, that won't <laughs> that won't help you memorize scripture very quickly, I'll suggest. But if you read the word, and commit to doing that, even in bite-sized chunks just to begin with, and to help, in a sense, feed that interest, that desire to want to be closer to him, the desire to want to be better educated so that you can be ultimately have a better grasp of understanding and knowledge so that you can not only avoid the pitfalls and the challenges, but when every wind and doctrine comes along, you'll be able to to use your, your truth detector based on what you know of Scripture to tell the difference between the real deal and a phony. Professor Kenneth Samples, philosopher, theologian, senior research scholar at Reasons to Believe, two good books to check out, Christianity Cross-Examined, and Classic Christian Thinkers. Great place to start. You can find either online through Amazon.com or through Reasons.org. That's Reasons.org. Our thanks to Professor Kenneth Samples. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation 535. I want to remind you our special Church of the Week highlight Coming up tonight at 6 o'clock, Pastor Russell Dooley will join us. You're going to be in for a real treat in this conversation, so I want you to make a, a special effort to hang around for that coming up a little bit later on in this evening's program. I want to spend a moment, if I can, um, talking about some of the um, the challenges, the, the aftermath related to men and women, families that have experienced abortion. And I say men and women, because so often we think that this is singularly impacting the woman, and certainly there is the largest impact there. But you have to remember, too, that that whether it's a decision that's made apart or separately, whether a woman feels coerced into it or does it voluntarily, whether the man was uh, fully in agreement or totally against it, when abortion happens, there's still a parent that has lost a child. And while the reckoning or the realization may not be in the immediate aftermath, 
inevitably, as we've heard down through the years from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people that have experienced this in their life, that inevitably the reckoning, the realization does come. And then, of course, what to do with how to manage all of that. Well, the good news is that there are ministry organizations that are helping provide counsel and insights an opportunity to gain some understanding and talk things through. With more information, we're joined now by Becky, Becky Morales, Hope Program Manager on behalf of Real Options. She started, by the way, as a volunteer with Real Options, my goodness, almost a decade ago, after having attended a retreat called Rachel's mm-hmm. Vineyard with her husband. And Becky, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Uh, share, if you would, first a bit about your involvement and uh, tell us about the Hope Program. Well, the whole program is for anyone impacted by pregnancy loss, and we offer three amazing healing pathways. One of those is we offer online support groups, and then we do Bible studies, and three, we offer four retreats, bilingual retreats a year. That's on a high level. Okay, and from there, uh, share a bit about your own experience with Rachel's Vineyard. Sure. Oh my gosh, I could talk about that for hours, but <laughs> that's actually how I got into this ministry. I was, um, I had two abortions before I met my wonderful husband, who is a pastor, and um, he, somebody had heard about, and she told me about a, a retreat that was designed for anyone that has had any pregnancy loss, and she's like, you should come. And I'm like, no way, that's stupid. Why would I want to go to a retreat to talk about my abortions? It's in the past, under the blood, you know what I'm saying? That's stupid. But she was sneaky, and uh, she actually went up to my husband, and he had gone through a previous divorce, and she said, you you and your wife should come to this retreat, and you should get healing for your divorce, and she should get healing for her abortion. And that's what my husband said. That's a great idea. So he literally kind of took me hostage. He's like, we are going to this retreat. And so we went there, and it was um, not on my own volition. But on the third day my whole life changed and I knew that I was going to do this for the rest of my life. It was so transformational. So after that, I asked if I could be part of the team and they said yes. And then two years later, that's a whole nother God story. The whole hope program fell in my lap and now I'm here. And of course, (laughs) your experience in Rachel's Vineyards is not unique. In fact, many, many individuals and couples have experienced this before, experienced this kind of healing as we hear now. Before I found healing, I felt unloved and not worthy. Now I feel really loved. I feel healthy. Before, I think I felt like I was just existing. But once the secret was out, it was like a freedom. There was a release. After the retreat, I felt liberated. Um, I no longer felt in darkness. I was able to feel the forgiveness that I received from, from, from the Lord. Going through Rachel's Vineyard and dealing with it as a married couple, we were able to come out of that just so much stronger than ever. I have seen transformation in others. And I have also seen it in me. Today I feel lighter, less ashamed. It's not like I feel like proclaiming that I did this, but if I see a need to share this story with someone, I don't hesitate. 
Before I found healing, I felt burdened. Now I feel freedom. Acceptance. Hope. Praise God. And I, I love those snippets of testimonies because in many real ways, Becky, it, it, some of it even mirrors your own. Really, I didn't really, you know, I, I didn't expect too much going in or I didn't think that I yeah. needed this. And then on the backside, realizing, wow, God has really used this to bring healing and restoration Absolutely. to my life. So Absolutely. talk a bit about what goes on at these retreats, what people can expect when they go to one. Well, a lot of it is people think it's like a seminar and or a conference, and it's nothing like that at all. It's it's almost like you have to take everything of what you expect and put it out of your brain. It's very experiential, and actually it's really hard um, because you literally have to walk through your past with other people in a safe place. And you go through very hard memories. But the great thing about it, which is because we actually have a therapist that does it with us, and um, because it is very intense. But the great thing about it is um, you're looking at your path through the blood of Jesus. And that's when it really becomes powerful. In the moment you start to understand that Jesus does not remember that he has cast it as far as the east is from the west then you can literally come out of this and realize I am not only am I forgiven, I, I'm healed and and you know, just like I said that um there's that mantra that says hurting people hurt others. But the more healing you get, you get to heal others. So heal people, heal others. And the more healing you get, the greater capacity you have to, to find your own healing. Um, you become a better mother, a better wife, a better leader. And that's what has been my mantra, even with pastors. I've talked to so many different pastors um, going to churches, and they will actually admit to, you know, I had an abortion, you know, um, when I was in high school. And I always encourage them, please come to Rachel's Vineyard Retreat. Sadly, you would think that, oh, I'm going to go. But I remember being in that place, too. Thank goodness for my husband to drag me there. But I think my I realize now that, the more healing you get from your past, the more you become a better leader, a better pastor. And, and so that it has always been my thing. So this is a lot of things what you expect from these retreats. These retreats, a lot of people who are pro-choice, and I just want a healing, you know, what I did, I feel like I did the right thing. And by the end of the retreat, they're saying, I, what I did was wrong. I killed the baby and I need forgiveness. These retreats are one of the best tools um, for, for people's heart to change and realize what they have done and find true repentance for Christ and then move past it and go forward. And that's what you can expect. If folks want to get more information about attending one of these retreats, I think you've helped us really understand not only the individuals that can benefit, but but the incredible healing that takes place. How can we get more information, Becky? You go on to realoptions.net, and you're going to actually see our, and there's going to be a lot of windows. It's going to be under the HOPE program and um, healing that you can get for your pregnancy loss. It's very simple, very easy, and we'll give you all the information you need 
And also for a lot of people, if you struggle with, if you're not sure about going to a retreat, uh, a great first step is going on to an online support group. And you can't, you're not going anyway. You just click on, we have them the first and third Thursday of the month. Email me and I'd love to give you the Zoom link. It's a great first step to get your feet wet and you're unsure of what you're doing. So yeah, that's what I encourage. And this is a loving environment. This is a safe environment. This is a private environment. You're not. If some people think, "Oh my goodness, a retreat! They're going to make me stand up and say something, and I'm going to feel stupid." No, that doesn't go on, and that's not what these retreats are about. It's not about trying to make you feel uncomfortable, but it's rather helping you to find comfort and relief and healing, perhaps for the first time in your life. To get more information about an upcoming Rachel's Vineyard Retreat, simply go online to friendsofrealoptions.net. That's friendsofrealoptions.net. Our thanks to Becky Morales, Hope Program Manager with Real Options, for that insight. And Becky, thank you for sharing your story. 545 from KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are reminded that prayer is the key and faith unlocks the door. From that wonderful hymn of the 1970s, wasn't it? Um, trying to think who sang that. I can picture him right now. Roger, he'll come to me. It's a sign of old age. Roger something or other. Prayer is the key to heaven. Sometimes you won't get a little overwhelmed, though. Especially if you have a reputation for being a bit of a prayer warrior and you enjoy communing with God. And yet, boy, how do you do it? I I don't mean how do you pray. What I mean is how can you have a sense? When you say to somebody, for example, I'll be praying for you, are you good on the follow through? Are you able to keep track of the execution on that? I know I, I have to make a list. If I don't make a list, inevitably, and I try to do it strictly from top of mind, uh, you run into somebody and they say, gee, uh, my son-in-law is dealing with cancer. Oh, I'll be sure and pray. I'll add them to my prayer list. And then a day or two goes by and you forget about it. And then six weeks later, you run into them somewhere at the grocery store. And they say, gee, my son-in-law is doing much better. Thank you for praying. And you go, oh, my goodness, I had completely forgotten. Sometimes it can be overwhelming. And yet, is there a practical way in which you can pray for friends, family, community? Well, my next guest says, absolutely, yes. Simply learn to pray A to Z, a practical guide to pray for your community. Amelia Rhodes joins us. And Amelia, what a brilliant book. Uh, When I first saw this come across my desk, I thought, oh, another book on how to pray. Well, there's plenty of those out there. But then I started thumbing through and went, oh, wait a minute. This is a whole new idea. Thank you. Yeah, that um, that's kind of how I felt. We don't need another book on how to pray. We need something that will actually help us to pray, because I'm, much like you described, that has been my struggle, too, saying I would pray for people, and then weeks later realizing, wow, I only prayed once, maybe twice, and just feeling this conviction that I needed to follow through and be faithful long term. And and as we talk about uh, lending a sense of of organization, I, I know some people might shudder a little bit and think, "Oh my goodness, I have to get an Excel, Excel spreadsheet going now. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> I got to go buy a laptop so I have it handy." <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, uh, I, I know that I need simple things that help me, and that's how Pray A to Z started for me, was just out of my own prayer life, feeling very overwhelmed and convicted of, you know, running into people later and remembering, oh, I, I said I was going to pray long term. And uh, so I just came up with this very simple way, and it started out, you know, note cards, three-by-five cards, and it grew into a book. I never would have dreamt I would write a book on prayer because I felt like I was the least qualified person to do that. <laughs> As you've approached this, you're, you're taking it very um, topical in a sense, and I guess it's true that people tend to, at least my life experiences, tend to fit in, you know, not, not, not neat, clean pigeonholes, but it tends to be, for example, there's a couple of people on my prayer list right now that are dealing with cancer. Mm-hmm. So they're in the cancer category. Mm-hmm. And then it seems perennially there is somebody that I know that's got a son or a daughter or a grandson or a grandchild that's kind of wandered away from the Lord and, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, maybe they've had a run-in with the law and things of that sort. So it seems as if um, the older we get, the health concerns, of course, tend to pile up. But it seems as if there are certain perennial categories that, that tend to be kind of repetitive. The names may change, but the needs are kind of the same. Does that make sense? It does, yeah, and that's how it started for me. It was after taking several phone calls and emails from friends all in one day, big, heavy requests, adoptions that weren't going well, cancer diagnosis, um, a marriage that was falling apart, when I realized, you know, this is heavy and overwhelming, and I asked God to help me be more faithful in my prayer life, and that was what I, the conclusion I came to, that so many people were struggling with the same types of things. What if I were to pray by category and maybe take one or two per day? And so that's how A became adoptions, and B became bullying, and then we expanded doing several topics per letter. And I found it, um, I kept the topics broad enough so that, yes, under cancer, you will remember your friends, their family members, their caregivers, their hospital staff caring for them, really just very broadly covering all of those struggling with the various topics. And uh, let's see, 26 letters in the alphabet that kind of takes us through um, A to Z literally over the course of a month. Right, right. And I ended up starting with one topic per letter, and then I ended up expanding it to five. So there are 150 different prayers and topics in the book, and um, two for each letter are actually prayers of praise. Yeah, I noticed that. And and was it intentional that you included that in there? Because, you know, so often we think about, uh, you know, the, the Scripture talks about going and bringing to the Lord our prayers and supplications, and it tends to usually be a laundry list of Heavenly Father, I need, right. so-and-so needs, the other one needs, and it's, it's typically uh, all very one-way communication in that sense. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we could almost, uh, if, if if heaven had an email address, we would, we would do that and just say, you know, dear God, here's my list. Uh, Get back to me when when you've answered all those requests. You're you're, you're suggesting a dynamic here that that really helps to not only give us a better sense of discipline about our prayer, but also helps to enrich our relationship with God. Absolutely, because as I prayed, you know, and I was we're looking at you know very heavy topics that we're all facing in our communities. We've mentioned cancer, but then like praying for the homeless and those who are serving them, um, zero prejudice, uh, our lawmakers, all of those big things happening in our communities. It can be very heavy, and I found myself, even in prayer, just feeling just this darkness and feeling overwhelmed. But when I began to praise God and recognizing who it is that I'm talking to, it really lightens the load because we remember that every need we have is met in who He is. 
And it was very exciting as I wrote it. So, for example, like C was cancer and caregivers and then praising God that he's the comforter. How very often, you know, these prayers of praise match up with the needs and recognizing, yes, we have these hard and heavy things. But remember, he's almighty. He's the comforter. He's our helper. There's also another dynamic to this that fascinates me, and I and I think it's one you know a, a, some people that kind of approach prayer casually uh, do it. They know they need to do it. They have a sense that it moves the hand of God, so they're obedient in that fashion. But there's lacking any sense of organization. It's easy to rack up the list of all the prayer needs, mm-hmm. and then forget about the times and they are frequent when God answers prayer. And I'm wondering if in this fashion in in giving a greater sense of organization to uh, how you pray and remembering to, to remember all the needs that are brought forward, is it also a tool in helping you keep track of, wow, when God answers prayer, let's make note of that too and right. also give thanks to the Lord in acknowledging the fact that here's another case where he's answered prayer. Absolutely. With, with each topic, I started out with a scripture because I, I really believe in starting with God's word. What does God say about this topic and this particular issue. And then in the prayer prompt, just a couple sentences, you know, remembering all of the people who are going through this. And then many times I prompted people, you know, think about the times where God has moved in your life in this area and give thanks for that. And then through the prayers, um, to not only think about the current situations, but situations in past, praising God for his faithfulness and how he has worked in these areas. And I think a lot of that helps to to not only give us a greater sense of discipline when it comes to our prayer, but, but also does a phenomenal job in strengthening our relationship and our faith. Right, and that is my hope through all of this. That, you know, often if we don't know where to go or we feel like we're just you know in a rut with the same things over and over, that it will it will expand our love for God and our love for our community, and that we will begin to experience this deepening relationship with Him as we begin to talk to Him intentionally and purposely, you know, every day. I funny. I was just looking at the calendar here and, and made note of the fact that it's December the fourteenth. Exactly a year ago today, I was flat on my back in a hospital being treated for cancer mm. and had suffered something called an ileus. I won't describe it. It's a blockage. Oh. Um, as, as I told my nurse, uh, it'll be about three hours from now, exactly a year ago. Uh, you mm. need to either give me some pain medication or bring me a gun. Mm. Horrifically painful experience. Right. And as we're talking, and I'm thinking back exactly a calendar year later, at the repeated answers to prayer, including on the day of the most painful day of my hospitalization, exactly a year ago today. And I think how grateful I am to serve a God who not only hears prayer, but who answers prayer, mm-hmm. and to be mindful and reminded of his faithfulness. And I think we do a good job in bringing those prayers and supplications to the Lord, I think, uh, quite often. But um, the discipline to keep track of all the times that he answers prayer, the miraculous fashion in which he is there with us, sometimes we kind of give mental assent to that. But I think actually writing it down and saying, well, we prayed for Uncle Charlie starting on this date, and X number of days, weeks, whatever later, here's the date when God answered the prayer. This can be a wonderful resource to the book. 
book is simply called Pray A to Z, A Practical Guide to Pray for Your Community. That's Pray A to Z, and uh, newly published by a Worthy Inspired. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, also through the uh, usual suspects like Amazon.com. Uh, it's a good read and uh, gives you some great tips. Our thanks to Amelia Rhodes, author of Pray A to Z, A Practical Guide to Pray for Your Community. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.